This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 1st, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The spread and lethality of the coronavirus should help reshuffle priorities when it comes to threats faced by Americans. But what would that look like in practice? Cato's Chris Preble details how defense priorities might shift and why they should. How has this pandemic changed the way uh, foreign policy people view threats? Well, I think it's a little too soon to say that that everyone's changed their mind, but I can see how it could change people's minds. Uh, first of all, that you know, for a long time, Americans were accustomed to not being um, in grave danger from foreign threats. This is one of our great uh, advantages over a lot of other countries around the world. Is you know, the, our neighbors to the north and south are friendly and weak, and we have fish to the east and west. And so, the kinds of traditional security threats that most countries worry about basically all the time, uh, we don't worry about those things. And precisely for that reason, that um, over time, U.S. foreign policy professionals and elites have sort of defined uh, how we deal with danger at a greater and greater distance. We don't want to be dealing with uh, potential invasion from, you know, through Mexico or through Canada. Uh, We want to deal with these problems far away. Well, uh, in some respects, that was a luxury uh, that we took advantage of for as long as we could, but then uh, you know we see this this disease, which is claiming you know fifty four thousand uh, today as of today, um, and uh, it's the it's a kind of thing that we haven't experienced in a very long time, over a hundred years basically, since the Spanish flu. So uh, in that sense, we can see how um, a, a proximate danger has. Uh, superseded the most recent great danger, which is terrorism after 9-11. The other um, thing I'd add is that precisely the nature of this threat, this disease, has revealed certain vulnerabilities in the U.S. military response. Um, you know, the the case of the Theodore Roosevelt in Guam, the aircraft carrier, which got some attention because the captain of the ship was was fired by the Secretary of the Navy, after making his concerns clear, but but from a military op- sort of readiness perspective, the the disease did what a Chinese anti ship missile has so far failed to do, which is to take a, an American aircraft carrier out of out of commission, out of service. So I think that um, also reveals some weaknesses or problems in U.S. military power that may factor in future discussions about how useful is uh, are the various military instruments and how vulnerable are they to disruptions like this. Uh, one of the funniest things I've seen uh, on the internet in the last couple of weeks was a what appeared to be a nuclear-armed submarine firing a missile hitting a virus. <laughs> yeah, I saw that picture too. <laughs> and it was... I, 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 I'm not sure what the intent was exactly, but at the very least, uh, and you allude to it, there ought to be sort of a reshuffling of priorities when it comes to uh, how Americans view safety. So uh, going forward, is there anything we can say at this point with some confidence about what might emerge as a framework for doing that? Well, not yet. I mean, I think there are some who have made the case fairly um uh, emphatically, that we are overinvested in traditional military power, and therefore we should um, uh, divert some of those resources to public health resources and things like that. I, I think it's it's far too soon to say 
that there's a consensus on that. Uh, I, I think there will continue to be strong support for military spending. I think the more uh, more proximate threat to military spending is deficits. Of, you know, the the massive increase in uh, federal spending to deal with the economic dislocation of COVID is almost certain to put downward pressure on the military budget. So I, I see that playing out much more so than uh, sort of a concerted effort to redirect resources from the military to public health. But I also think, and I, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, that the comparing side by side uh, military costs to the cost of the kinds of equipment that would have kept us safe or helped in dealing with the COVID crisis uh, put in pretty stark relief just how expensive some of these military uh, instruments are. Um, and you know, you know, a single tank could buy literally uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of masks, for example, something like that. I, I think you're likely to see more arguments along those lines, even as the this particular pandemic abates. Uh, that for the next time around, people will push much harder on the argument. Well, we need to buy all of this military equipment, and we don't need to worry about personal protective equipment or masks or uh, ventilators or ICU beds or things like that. I've had this similar conversation with with several different people uh, about the notion that our minds are, uh, in a sense, programmed to worry about relatively few risks uh, in our lives. And um, to the extent that one becomes prominent, others must fall. So uh, to the extent that that has occurred, what what do we know about how people are thinking about this risk versus the ones that uh, people were trying to get us to worry about before this? Well, what we do know is that human beings are a uniquely visual creature. Um, and so um, we are most frightened of things that we can see. Uh, you know, other animals use smell or hearing or whatever else. But but the fact that we cannot see this disease, we can see the effects of the disease. We can see people in hospitals. We can pe- pe- see people, you know, in the worst cases in, in coffins and things like that. But, but we can't see it. And so it's hard uh, for us to get our heads around that particular danger relative to much more visual um, threats like, you know, a terrorist attack. Uh, a bombing, you know, a, a building destroyed, things like that. We're we're much more likely to react to those kinds of incidents. The other factor that weighs in here is very high impact events. So a large number of people killed in a single event have a much more serious and longstanding impact upon our our psyche, our fears than a much, much larger number of people being killed over the course of six or eight weeks or six or eight months. So so when we look at how, how humans assess risk as a danger to life, the, com- the combination of likelihood of an event and the magnitude of the event, we are much more likely to expect a reaction to a uh, high visibility, low likelihood, but but high impact events that likely will continue even when we emerge from this disease. If we ultimately conclude that this disease killed, say, a hundred thousand people who would not otherwise have died, let's just use that as a, as a number here in the United States. Who knows what the number actually will be? But but if we figure out that that's what that additional increment of, of deaths are from this disease, um, I don't think it will have the same impact 
as if a hundred thousand people had been killed by terrorism since 9-11. It's about the sort of high impact, uh, high, um, high, you know, very visual sort of thing. But by the same token, I do think that those of us who have been arguing about the more likely threats to human life, the, the things that are more likely to kill you, there will be, I think, an adjustment in people's recognition that just focusing on very high, uh, uh, low likelihood, but high consequence events like terrorism at the expense of other things that are likely are more likely to kill you is probably a mistake. And that's something that, of course, John Mueller uh, at Cato has been talking about for a number of years. Alex Narasta has talked about it with respect to immigration, for example, and it's something that I've talked about. So I do think that we're in a moment where making an argument that assessing accurately, that it is incumbent upon policymakers to assess as accurately as possible the most likely uh, threats and dangers to their citizens and to design policies that are most likely to protect the highest number of people. That to me is the sort of the essence of uh, measuring the effectiveness of, of policy. Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.